Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. We've been celebrating our 250th Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast all week here with Owen McDevitt and Ken Early and Kieran Murphy. Hello there, Owen. Yeah, I thought you'd doing? nearly forgotten me. I'm sitting right here <laughs> beside you. How could you have done such a thing? This is the last of our special deluxe bonus programmes. It features a thoroughly enjoyable interview with David Bedeal. Well, at least we, uh, sh- we found it enjoyable to do. I hope you, I hope David enjoyed it and I hope you enjoy it when we bring it to you in the next few minutes. Bedeal, go on, Ken. Enjoyment. Very much the theme. The theme here, yeah. Uh, Bedeal's been hugely successful stand-up uh, comic and novelist but he first shot into my consciousness probably a lot of ours as co-presenter and creator of the Brilliant Fantasy Football League he's also a huge Chelsea fan which you probably remember even from those years it's a different probably a very different thing to be a Chelsea fan in 1995 than maybe it is in 2004 certainly the club is at a very different place then I think yeah they were actually just kind of getting good again Chelsea around that time I mean they were beaten in an FA Cup final in 1994 94, yeah. yeah beaten very badly Got to the semis, I think, the f- in 96. But eventually managed to win the FA Cup uh, under... It was Ruud Hullet was the manager, I think. But, you know, had players like Hullet, Viali, Zola, um, Latterly. And actually, I think we're, at that point, the perfect balance for Chelsea fans. In what way? Because they had a team that was good enough to, you know... Uh, they beat Barcelona, I remember, in the Champions League. Uh, 3-1. I mean, they lost 5-1 in the away, uh, in the away match. But they... You know, they beat Galatasaray, I think, 5-0 in Turkey at one point. They beat Man United 5-0. They had these, and they won They won the Cup Runners Cup, they won the FA Cup. They had some kind of great uh, great games and great uh, nights and so on. But without that, they it was before they became this kind of monster that they now are, mm. which which happened when Abramovich uh, arrived. And it meant that every win that they had was 
really an occasion for celebration because they didn't really expect to win. Yeah, I think they still celebrated quite a lot now when they win. Then, uh, but now they expect to win. They're up on the hedonic treadmill now, Owen. And it's, you know, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, human nature is to be, is to be more, um, to be hurt more by losses than to be enthused by gains. You know, so Chelsea have a lot to lose now. We talked. They're going to lose it one day. Yeah, we talked about that. When will that day be? With <laughs> David Baddiel, we also talked about fantasy football those days. Uh, but Jose Mourinho, we inter- interviewed Jose quite recently. It was a piece that just came out last week. So uh, we'll play that for you very shortly, as this is our final show in our second captain's 250 celebration week. It's only right we give Murph a chance to bring us a little bit of this. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I've got the potatoes yeah. and the poutine. Huh? And the poutine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Bone and bread, yeah, in uh, County Mead, a little place called Navin. <laughs> Well, hello there, Owen. <laughs> and it is indeed, of course, a very special second captain's Irish Times 250 Pierce Brosnan Ever Good Shout Out. I mean, that might be the longest name of any radio segment in the history of radio. But anyway, uh, experienced travellers, all, of course, are Pierce Brosnan Emigrants. And uh, old P. Bezwars know one thing above all else, son. That no matter where you travel in this world, there will always be some turkey wearing a Mayo jersey. And so we go to Patagonia now, and an email from Conor Corbett, who. He sent us photographs. He was wrapped up extremely warm, you know, extremely cold conditions. But I do know that there is a Mayo jersey underneath all of this wrapping. I just have a feeling. But Connor's email reads, All right, lads, great work. Love the show. Though there are no celebs in the vicinity and the only wild animals were mainly large sea lions too busy fishing in the lake behind to notice the camera, I thought I'd send in this P. Bezo shout-out as I thought it might be a bit different. I'm right down the south of Patagonia in winter on an extended post-World Cup break at the Perito Moreno Glacier uh, in the National Park of Glaciers near El Calafate. Sounds amazing. It looks amazing. It's the most amazing P. Bezel photograph I think that we've ever received and we will put it up uh, on our website and the Irish Times website. It's outrageous and needless to say pictures do no justice especially as the lad asked to take the photo couldn't figure out how to work the panorama. It was ridiculously cold that day and definitely got a few odd looks from everyone else uh, trying to keep warm inside as I rummaged through the rubbish skip outside the coffee shop for some cardboard and then asked around in pigeon Spanish for a marker. All worked out in the end though and the Pibezo uh, sign did survive. Hopefully you'll consider this for your Pibezo shout out this week. Cheers, mayo for Sam. Mm. Oh, Connor, so close to being the best email we'd ever received. Uh, and an honourable mention, it should uh, it should go to uh, Barra Neary, risking his life out far. Hey lads, I've just moved to Atlanta to work in a hospital over here, the home of Ebola, as it's known. I managed to catch a Braves game before the pandemic strikes and the city turns into 28 days later. Love the show. Well, I've got a medical update for you, Barra. The Pierce Brosnan Emigrant Shoutout t-shirt is in fact the only known Ebola-proof garment known to mankind. So, <laughs> use that power wisely, sir. Asterix will not prevent <laughs> Ebola from May striking. May not defend against yeah. Ebola. Yeah. Alright, I like it, Murphy. A quick mention of a brand new website, secondcaptains.com. Do get onto that. Some nice prizes are already available on there. So a little bit of bribery if you weren't already planning on having a look. But let's get to our chat now with David Bedil. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. He's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. We're delighted to welcome David Bedil to the show. David, thanks very much for chatting to us, first of all. Hello, my pleasure. I'm actually looking at your website at the moment, uh, and I can see both uh, Owen and Ken on your website dressed in what look like 70s football clothes yep. uh, on cigarette cards. 
Yeah, guilty as charged. It's helpful to me because I need to know what you look like, I think. Uh, although I hadn't expected you to look exactly like this. That is actually all my own hair. David. Is it really? Yeah, the bits that are left of it, it's, it's, it's all it still mine. It looks a tiny bit like Ralph Coates. I don't know if you remember Ralph Coates. <laughs> he, had, he was one of the first bald, properly bald footballers. Uh, but he always, as footballers used to in those days, he used to keep a comb over as well. Uh, although you've got the tash. Okay, is that a real tash? No, but, no, that's, that's, that's not mine. That's yak hair. <laughs> well, it looks great. Yeah, almost everything there is fake on me, David, oh. so that's why I have to, have to move it on. Listen, you, you met um, Jose Mourinho recently and interviewed him, a man mm. you describe as your saviour in football mm. terms as a yeah. Chelsea fan. Did he make a positive impression? Um, well, uh, it was very nerve-wracking for me because uh, he's a very, very important man now. And so uh, I'm not suggesting he was, wasn't before, but he's become more and more important. And uh, I only had 15 minutes to talk to him, and uh, I've been told by the Radio Times, who I was doing the interview with, that they didn't really want me to talk about football. After I said yes, because they said, do you want to interview Jose Mourinho? And obviously I said yes, because I'm a Chelsea fan. Um, and I, I do love Jose Mourinho. He very much, in my mind, was the person who finally transformed Chelsea, who had been a team I'd supported for many years, uh, through quite a lot of drudgery, through quite a lot of them being in the second division, through quite a lot of false starts in the 90s, to sub- properly being you know, a league-winning uh, side to being a premiership winning side uh, so I was very excited uh, and then they said you can't talk about football so I thought well why did I bother uh, so in the end of course I did talk about football but in quite a sort of generalised way because the Radio Times is not a sporting magazine yeah. so I talked to him about you know what it is that makes him a winner and here's the thing I feel that when Mourinho for, Mourinho gets a bad rap I think he has this idea that he's a guy who just wins ugly who doesn't care about the beautiful game. He just wants to win and he'll park the bus wherever or and he'll use all sorts of psychological tactics. Because I remember when he first came to Chelsea, we were playing the most brilliant attacking football. We were suddenly winning games 4-1, 4-0, 5-0. You know, we really became a brilliant attacking side. And then it seized up a bit round about the time that, you know, things started to go wrong between him and Abramovich. But, so anyway... Uh, I'm going on a bit, guys. Do it. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. But, yeah, this is one of my favourite subjects. So anyway, so I said to him, "It's not true, is it, Jose? You do love the beautiful game. You must love football beyond just winning." And he said, "No, I just like winning." Essentially, mm. <laughs> he said, "I don't think football has any kind of football isn't football unless basically it's about competitiveness and winning." Um, and so I didn't really get that sort of softer. No, I am an artist side out of him. He is. Very, very focused on winning. I mean, can I just say one more thing about yeah, him? I know yeah. I'm going on. But and we're going we're to keep asking about him, don't okay, we? He, he also said, uh, he started talking about, I said to him that Frank Lampard once told me that he loved Mourinho. And I said, how do you inspire this new player? And he started talking about Kaká. And when Kaká was at Real Madrid, um, when Mourinho was there, um, Mourinho didn't like him uh, and decided not to play him, even though he cost Real Madrid 69 million euros, I think. Um, and... Despite this, he told me this story that Kaká had been speaking to uh, Luis, Felipe Luis, that new Brazilian player we've got, uh, and had said to him, you should go there, Mourinho's a brilliant manager. And Mourinho said this to me, and he said, I love that, basically, because it shows that even though you know, Kaká and I didn't get on, he realises that I'm a good manager. Did you believe the story? Well, I didn't really believe it. What I took <laughs> from it is that Mourinho is someone who just doesn't admit that anything's ever gone wrong in his life. Because it went wrong with Kaká, you know, they, he was the most expensive player in the world at the time, uh, and, you know, it was a big mistake, some would say, that he didn't get into work at Real Madrid, but, but Mourinho, in a very Mourinho way, has now transformed that story to not demonstrate that he 
screwed up, but that even with players who he didn't get on with, they will come to realise that he's a great manager. Did so you... I think it's all about confidence in Mourinho. He's an incredibly confident bloke. Yeah, did you find something chilling about that kind of sense of destiny? A little bit. He's a, a, he's a fanatic, essentially. Bit. There's an element of hired assassin, very confident hired assassin to him, uh, that he will, you know, you know the way that you imagine in, a, in those kind of like films that the hired assassin never questions what he does. That there's a sort that, that you know that's what makes him the great. There's got an element of that to him that you can't. I, I put this other thing to him. I said, you know, when Brian Clough was, a, you know, one reason why he became a great manager, in my opinion, Brian Clough was that he was a very good player who then got injured when he was 26, and that fire of un, of stuff unachieved maybe was what made him a great manager. And I said to Mourinho, maybe with you, it's because you never achieved that much as a player, and he wouldn't have that. He said, no. No, I knew I wasn't a good player. I tried to be a player, yes, because you know I was a kid, so I wanted to be a player. But I wasn't. A bo- I realised I wasn't very good very quickly, and so I decided, no, I am to be a manager. And I thought, well, again, this is someone who won't admit the possibility of, of the negative in his life. I remember his great friend, Sir Alex Ferguson. Well, I don't know if they're still friends, but uh, they, they, they certainly always used to pretend to be friends. And then yeah. Ferguson chose David Moyes. Um, but he said uh, at one point when he was sort of... Um, he, he always spoke quite well of Mourinho when they were actually rivals, managing yesterday. He said, he brings a great humour to it. Now, mm. Ferguson himself is a famously humourless man. Mm. Uh, do you think Jose Mourinho is actually funny? It's hard to tell, isn't it? I, I mean, mean, I don't wish to sound... This is going to come across as a bit xenophobic, but he is Portuguese. Right? <laughs> and I don't know what their record is like with comedy. Um, I mean, he certainly says things in a way that, you know, when he's asked stupid questions questions that he deems to be stupid, Mourinho often bats them away with a kind of lofty, amused thing. Uh, and so I think maybe, you know, he does have a sense of humour. Actually, my brother, Ivor Badil, who's a comedy writer, worked with him on uh, that UNICEF thing. What's it, what is it that they do at Old Trafford? Uh, what is that thing where celebrities play in a team? Oh, yes. What's uh, that called? <laughs> is that the thing Boris Johnson was in? Really? Yeah, that thing yeah. that Boris Johnson was in. It's called something, Soccer Aid. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. So Soccer Aid, so Mourinho managed the um, celebrity team, I think, or the rest of the world team this year. Uh, and actually, he went on the pitch at one stage and, and tackled someone. Did you see that? I hadn't seen that, no. Yeah, that was pretty funny. That was a bit of proper visual comedy. The manager suddenly coming off of the touchline and tackling someone. It wasn't quite out with Boris Johnson's rugby tackle, <laughs> but it was still pretty funny. I because he certainly, gets, yeah, he certainly gets journalists laughing quite a lot, and it seems to have the media eating out of the palm of his hand, which yeah, is maybe yeah. a different thing than being genuinely funny. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would... If he became a stand-up, I don't think I'd rush to his gigs, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, to, as far as football management goes, and certainly foreign football management, I think he's, you know, reasonably... He's got a kind of wry, raised eyebrow thing going on, which I, I'm going to say is funny. Is it, is it a sign of the way that football has changed that, that a man like Mourinho, who maybe in, in times past would have become... I don't know, possibly an actor or, or maybe a, a cruel colonel in the Portuguese <laughs> army, is, yeah. is now drawn to make his career in the game without it being considered a waste of his talent. It isn't a waste of his talent, let's be honest. He's a very, very successful manager. Uh, he is you know, uh, the most successful manager in the world, arguably. Um, I don't think, you know, but I agree with you that he's not your obvious manager mould. I, I mean... I don't go on about this piece, but you, you, you mentioned it at the start. In this piece I wrote, I also said that British managers seem to me to not really have changed character-wise since, like, the 70s. You know, the, since when I was growing up, a manager was basically like... 
Malky Mackay. Yeah, well, maybe not as bad as that. But yeah, like the bloke who manages Melchester Rovers in Viz. Uh, you know, they wear sheepskin coats and they are resolutely blokey, working class, look like they always drink 15 pints a night uh, and are not interested in, in, you know, clothes or basically charisma or anything that might imply, you know, any kind of sex appeal. Uh, you know, they, they, they basically... Um, you know, I can't think of a British manager, whether it's whether it's Harry Redknapp or Sam Allardyce or David Moyes, whoever it is, who wouldn't have looked exactly like they do now in 1953. Then suddenly, you know, whenever it was that Joseph Bengloss appeared, we had this thing where foreign managers could be quite academic and professorial. And then you got Wenger, obviously, but they too, they were not the last thing they were was sexy. And then that's what Mourinho's done. That's why he's so commercially successful as an icon to some extent. He's introduced this idea that you can be a football manager of all things and be kind of sexy. And I think that's you know, done very well for him as a brand. When did your own relationship with Chelsea begin, David? Uh, well, it began uh, when they won the FA Cup in 1970, which I was watching on the telly when I was six, on a black and white telly, and my brother, who I've mentioned already, but he's, he's key in my football life because he was 18 months older than me, and he, I just did what he did when I was a kid. I don't know if you've got an older brother, but that's what you do when you're six. And I remember him being excited that Chelsea had won uh, in the replay and beaten Leeds. And so I just started supporting him. Then we didn't live near Chelsea. We lived uh, in a place called Dollis Hill in North London, which isn't really near any football grounds. So we're probably a bit near Arsenal. Um, and then when I was old enough to go, see that well, that was one of the things why I think I think of, of Jose as my saviour because. Chelsea had a great team then, a very fancy Dan team. They had Osgood, they had, uh, you know, they had Alan Hudson, they had Eddie Gray. No, they never Eddie Gray. They had Charlie Cook. Eddie Gray played for Leeds. Uh, but they had a lot of really brilliant players. Peter Bonetti, you know, really good players. And then by the time I was old enough to go, which was sort of 1975-76, they didn't have any of those players. They'd all left or got too old. And they had players like Mickey Droy, who you may or may not remember, but he... <laughs> Mickey Droy, God love him, was not a player that you would romanticise about. So then for about, you know, 25 seasons, they carried on being essentially quite a mediocre side, uh, and all that romance didn't come back until the late 90s, which actually was when Hoddle started managing Chelsea, and that's when they started to go back to being kind of a flair side. They are said to have an anti-Semitic element in their support. Did you ever come across that? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah? Well, the thing that I've got a lot of heat here over the last couple of years for doing, which you may or may not be aware of, but I started a campaign with Kick Racing Out of Football to try and uh, encourage fans not to use the word yid yeah, uh, yeah. in football on the, on the terraces. And that's been m- widely mistaken, uh, not least by Tottenham fans as being a huge attack on Tottenham fans. It isn't, actually. I mean, although Tottenham fans are important in the equation, it was completely about being a Chelsea fan because I've put up with years and years and years of Chelsea fans chanting that word with lots and lots of anti-Semitic add-ons at Tottenham fans, but also at Israeli teams. Uh, I remember us playing Maccabi Haifa and them chanting that word. Uh, if any player even... The, the time I actually started it was... You know, me and my brother had put up with it for years, and then one time, I think, we were playing Aston Villa, and we heard that uh, Spurs... On the, we're losing to Hull, I think it was. It came up on the scoreboard. And suddenly, 
lots of the crowd start chanting Yido, Yido over again. And then a bloke, a bloke behind us, who'd never noticed him there before, starts going, fuck the Yids, fuck the fucking Yids, over and over again. And then, fuck the Jews, fuck the fucking Jews, over and over again. And, I don't, you know, you probably do know this, but in, in England, there's meant to be a zero-tolerance culture to racism. On the terraces, no one does anything. Well, how, how does everyone react? I mean, is, are no, people no just giving sidelong I mean, dances, or so? But no one, you know, there's a certain freezing of the air, but no stewards come over and remove him and ban him from the ground, as would happen if he'd used any other type of type of racist language. Just nothing happens until my brother, who is very, very slightly harder than me. My brother looks like me with a stocking over my head, <laughs> so he's slightly harder than me. He gets up and tells his bloke to shut up. And for about a second, it looks like there's going to be a fight, but then the bloke shuts up. And my brother sits down and he says to me, I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> and uh, as a result of that, we decided, me and my brother, to go to kick racing out of football and try and create a film about that, which took a long time to get done with a lot of opposition uh, from people. But eventually what happened was actually a key element of that was that Gary Lineker decided that he would appear in that film. It's called The Y Word and you can see it online with an awful lot of hate underneath it um, from the online comments. But Gary Lineker said that he would do it. And when Gary Lineker said he would do it, then Frank Lampard said he would do it. And then Ledley King did it and, and a number of other footballers. Uh, and so we managed to get it made. But it's been much misunderstood, really, because yeah. really it's not about Tottenham. It's about a sort of uh, London-wide, really. It's really about London-wide kind of problem where West Ham and Arsenal and Chelsea are all involved in anti-Semitic abuse that, that centres around that word. It's pretty impressive to get current footballers to speak about those kind of issues. Did you? What sort of an impact? You said there's a lot of hate below it, and there's. Uh, if, you, if you go and look at the Y word online, I mean, I don't generally, but if you do, uh, I think you'll find that there's an incredible amount of abuse and hate. Uh, uh, yeah, as a result. So of did, it. but did it? Did it? Was it worth taking that? I mean, did it achieve close yeah, to well, what I you hoped yeah, it would I, achieve? Who knows? I I feel at Chelsea there is less anti-Semitic stuff on terrorism than they used to be. Um, and I certainly, even when we play Tottenham, I hear the word, uh, what we call the Y word, uh, chanted less than I used to. Um, and I'm just glad we raised awareness of it, because mm. that's what we're really, really trying to do, is raise awareness and to say, look, we are constantly being told about racist abuse of other sorts on the terraces. I, I've been going to a club for 30 years where I hear this, regularly and no one seems to even sort of acknowledge that it happened so we raised awareness of it so in that sense i think it did achieve something at chelsea fc a very different club from the one that you started going to i mean as you as you were saying there was about yeah. 25 seasons of um, not great and then um roman abramovich comes i mean abramovich is such a strange figure really i mean you know maybe the most powerful individual uh, in english football or certainly close to it um, almost nothing is known about him, has never uh, spoken about anything, has this vast fortune of, mm. uh, in, that the, in the most generous possible terms, somewhat dubious provenance, mm. which nobody ever asks any questions about. What were your own feelings when Abramovich came uh, and took over? Because it was immediately obvious at, at, the, at the moment, on the, on the very day that it happened, that this was completely going to change Chelsea mm. forever. He, he, he yeah. had so much money that it had completely turned English football on its head. Did mm. you, what were your feelings at, at that point? Well, I think he's been sort of superseded now. I'm not, I don't mean in national financial terms, but just in sort of that idea of the takeover of the club by a rich individual, people like Vincent Tan and whatever seem to be, to be more colourful in the way that they've done that. And it's, you know, um, 
and therefore it's sort of eclipsed. It's these sort of field, and you know, and actually they've tried to balance the books recently, Chelsea. It hasn't just been about buying, buying, buying. So it's slightly not what it was. But when he first came, there was no question that you know it was like a cartoon strip in which a secret millionaire, uh, you know, gives the poor people some money and it changes their lives. Um, it was clear that this was going to completely transform Chelsea, and it would be a lie, a complete lie of me to pretend that I somehow thought that was there was a negative in that. I didn't. I thought this is brilliant. I mean, that I, I have met Chelsea fans, uh, the sort of football fans who are slightly masochistic, who, who say, oh, I sort of prefer it like it was in the old days when we were shit and, you know, we never won anything. But, I, no, I, I was reared on Chelsea being, um, you know, a club, A, that won some things, because we won the FA Cup and the European Cup Winners' Cup when I first time supporting them, but also that, that had some brilliant players, you know, and so the fact that we could suddenly start buying brilliant players really felt to me like the destiny that I'd always been looking for in this club. Uh, I mean, which is not to say I think obviously there's been all sorts of things that have been complicated and odd about that regime at Chelsea, um, and also, you know, sometimes we, we haven't um, been the, the, you know, the fabulously entertaining flair side that I thought we might be when Abramovich started doing that. And I think, actually, I think that's what he wants. I think Abramovich has always wanted a, a kind of side of Galacticos that play amazing football, that sort of like Barcelona were uh, certainly a couple of seasons ago and, and that kind of stuff. But he's never quite found the manager who will do that for him, I think. Um, so, anyway, my point is, I do like Abramovich. You've no I have met him, by the way. You have? Met him. Yeah, I met him uh, actually once at the, um, at the Champions League final. Uh, I met him once at Man United. Uh, when we played Man United, I, I, I met him there. And then I, I saw him uh, when I was in Munich uh, for the, when we won the Champions League. Uh, and I sort of, having met him once before, tried to say hello. But you motion towards Abramovich in a room and five very frightening Russian people surround you. So I, I moved away. How was the first interaction? Did you chat to him for long? The first interaction, I said hello, but I, I don't think at that point, it was quite early on, either he doesn't speak English or didn't speak English then, or he's so shy, which I think he is, he was like frightened of me because I was a bit hairy or something. I don't know why. Uh, but he just looked at me blankly and I said hello and didn't really get a response and I walked away. I remember uh, Matthew. I tell you what, yeah. there's one thing about him. When I met him the first time, I thought, blimey, he's got a lot of money, but he dresses really badly. Like, <laughs> he was wearing what appeared to be my dad's wind cheater. That he used to, you know, the sort of thing that my dad would wear in the car when he hadn't been bothered to put anything on. He was wearing that and a pair of slacks. I remember, so, yeah. I remember when Sky Sports News were doing a piece about him a year or two back with Tony Cascarino, and I think it was Matthew Syed of the Times. Yeah. Uh, Cascarino was there to do a puff piece on Roman Abramovich, not reckoning on Matthew Syed's uh, journalistic integrity taking over, and uh, there followed a very entertaining conversation where Syed's exploring the, the dubious... Uh, wealth that he's garnered and Cascarino looked like looked absolutely gobsmacked that he was involved in this conversation but uh, you said that this, you've no problems with that this is the way football has gone it's not just well, Abramovich I, I mean you know, in terms of the provenance of his wealth you know I, I, I'm sure I would have a problem with it I don't have a problem with it in terms of like you know what he's doing for the club in terms of uh, you know how he got that money I don't know how he got that money and I'm sure it's dubious but show me the oligarch that got his money through the sweat of his brow and fair dealing, uh, you know, I don't think, I think those people who have that kind of money 
you know, it's all weird and dodgy and whatever. Um, so, yeah, sorry, carry on. You saying, you but no, you seem like you're still very much in love with the game. You talk to people uh, who... We interviewed Michael Parkinson not so long ago, and he'd been a big football man for a long time back in the day. And uh, you know, he's he he very much um, got fed up with it. Maybe those are guys who grew up in the fifties and sixties. I, I don't know. But Des Lynham also has spoken recently about how it's not it's an alien game to them now. I'm not trying to put you in that in that age bracket by any <laughs> yeah. means, David. But I'm just uh, I'm just Why wondering. Why do you like Michael Parkinson? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I I think. People, I don't know about Des, uh, but I think Michael Parkinson has become a bit of a grumpy old man. Um, and I think, you know, this is a really obvious and banal thing to say, but there is not an era, certainly in sport, uh, where people don't start saying, well, things were much better, of course, 20 years ago. Uh, that is what people say. Uh, and to some extent, that is because their youth was 20 years ago, and so things look better. Uh, but I think that there is no, obviously, football has become a much more corporate entity i tell you the way you can really tell that. During the World Cup, I noticed that Vauxhall um, had um, managed to get, I mean, I'm probably not the first people to do this, but the first time I noticed it, to get their logo printed on the collar of various shirts. So Roy Hodgson's collar would have Vauxhall on it. And I thought, ah, that's because they know that if there's a close-up of Roy Hodgson, you won't see the badge if it's on his chest area of Vauxhall. So they've got it on the collar Right, and someone has thought about that and forced that in the contract with Roy Hodgson or England that they, every time they have to wear these shirts, which they have to for every interview, it has to have it on the collar as well. And that is not something that you would have seen happening, you know, with Don Revy. Um, and it is so. It is definitely true, obviously, that it's become a much more corporate entity. It's kind of mad when you see people interviewed now, and there's so many logos behind them and all the rest of it. And it's mad how much it costs, and obviously, it's completely mad what they get paid. Mm. Nonetheless, and this is, I think, the thing about sport, which is, I think, in a way, what, when, when I was first asked to do so, you, know, you were going to talk kind of about what it is about sport. That's one of the things about sport, which is uniquely amongst sort of modern, the modern times. I think that sport can manage, when it's great, which it often isn't, but when it is great, to rise above all the shit. And there's lots of shit accumulating at, uh, around sport at the moment, more than there was years ago. But still... There's something about sport that when you lose yourself in it, none of that matters. No, who cares about any of that stuff? Who cares that Roy Hodgson has to wear a shirt with Vauxhall on it? If England were winning, which of course they're not, but if they were, it, don't, it wouldn't matter. Do you know what I mean? Sport, yeah. sport I think, retains its purity somehow. Um, in a way that lots of nothing else really does, I think. I, yeah. can think of. I mean, one of the best examples of it that I can actually think of is that Champions League final you mentioned, the 2012 uh, Chelsea against Bayern, where you've got this, um, okay, oligarchs play thing, they're advertising, uh, who was it at the time? I suppose the, the airline from the, from the Arab oil state. Um, and, you know, you can kind of think all these things. Uh, but at the end of it, they were just 11 guys up against 11 other guys in a hostile stadium. And you see yeah. that the way that guys like Lampard and Drogba and one Wada played that night, and you think um, you kind of all the other stuff falls away. In a well, sense. even in the World Cup, I thought. I mean, you know, the World Cup's ridiculously over-commercialised, and there's all sorts of ways in which FIFA, who were very corrupt, as we know, you know, screw it up and all that stuff. But you'd have to be such a puritan not to think, yeah, but there was some brilliant football. And when there was brilliant football, you know, then uh, you don't care. And I'll compare it if I could compare it to music, right? Music is fucked, I think. I mean, you can, people will still make good music, but 
you know, to go to do the thing of things were better. When I was growing up, there was David Bowie, right? <laughs> now there will never be anyone like David Bowie ever again, I think, because the economics of music are fucked and the cultural position of music in our life is fucked. And so therefore, you, you just, no one will ever emerge like that who you worship virtually like a god and what and his you know, talent is virtually supernatural because I just, I might be wrong. You're not a Bruno I, Mars fan? Yeah, <laughs> that's it. I, hey, Bruno Mars, he writes a nice tune. But do you know what I mean? I, I cannot imagine David Bowie or Neil Young or the Beatles or whatever. I can't imagine any musician, pop musician, having that kind of cultural impact again. But isn't it can really imagine, just because it's I this... can imagine yeah. there being footballers who are as great as the footballers that we've seen before. There will still be great footballers and great football matches, just as great as we've seen before. You mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago all the, the shit you said that's acu- that accumulates around the game. I guess one aspect of that is the, is the kind of coverage of the game, mm. um, which has exploded uh, hugely over the last 20 years. Mm. Um, and So the way football has talked to it has changed quite radically. Maybe you were kind of at the forefront of that change in the 1990s with the TV show with Frank Skinner. Mm. Uh, do, you, do you sometimes look upon the, uh, the current uh, media landscape that surrounds the game and think, what did I do? I don't know. I mean, partly because, I mean, fantasy football has been tried. I mean, I'm aware of it, uh, like pilot stage, but also beyond, you know, like that James Corden show. And there's Mm. been loads and loads of attempts to replicate fantasy football, and it's never happened. It's never really worked. And I think that's because, you know, it was partly to do with a particular time, but it was also partly to do with a particular chemistry between me and Frank and a particular reality to how we felt about football that they haven't been able to find, I think, again. Um, I, I mean, you know, I think that there has, you know, it did shift a bit in terms of, you know, not being so formal about the game. And, and interestingly enough, I saw that match of the day thing. I don't know if you saw that. It was about 50 years of match of the day. Yeah. And Adrian Childs was on that talking about match of the day too, and slightly pissed me off by saying that, oh, well, I think match of the day too. It came about because we thought let's do football that's a bit like Top Gear. And I thought, no, it came about because of fantasy football. That's why <laughs> you've got that slightly jokey, slightly you know, sitting around just with your mates feel to match the day too. Um, but I don't, I mean, I would say that the huge media explosion around football is not to do with fantasy football, it's to do with money. It's to do with Sky and it's to do with money and it's to do with, you know, the fact that people think, well, how can we certainly get an audience? We'll do another program or another show or more coverage about football. Um, and, you know, in fantasy football's defence, it was very not that in feel. It was like a cottage industry way of looking at football. You know, it's all about let's, let's take it back to just sitting around with your mates with some drinks, watching football and making jokes about the footballers. What, how did that idea come about in the first place? If Match Day 2 years later came about as a result of Fantasy Football League, what, what did you guys base it on? Well, we didn't base it on anything because I try very hard um, when I'm having ideas and not always successfully but uh, to do stuff that hasn't been done before I, I'm really keen on trying to create stuff that's new uh, it came about because um, fantasy football as a game was quite current in the early 90s and I was playing it on there's a radio show that used to have as a section of it you know a little fantasy football league but it wasn't a comedy show it was just some people uh, playing the game and then the guy who invented the game phoned me up and said, could we put this on the TV? And I said, no, uh, I think that'll be dull. But a comedy show about football that incorporated the game, that hasn't been done. 
I'll, I'll go and talk to Frank about it. He was living in my house at the time. Uh, and then I think me and Frank just said, that why don't we just do, <laughs> essentially out of laziness to some extent, why don't we just put our life on the telly? Because our life consisted of quite a lot of sitting around uh, being friendly with each other, watching football and having mates around. So, uh, you know, it was just that, really. It was, I, But it, I did think, if you watch fantasy football, there hasn't really been a show like it, and, and there wasn't a show like it before, you know. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that comes from an instinct to want to do stuff that's different. I mean, it was part of a big uh, sort of a moment in the 1990s, I guess, and, and I don't know what you thought was the... what what stands out for you in your memory, but for me, I remember... Um, this scene of is it before the England Germany semi final at Wembley, mm. and uh, the it's, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, this is Euro '96 semi, and the uh, and I think the BBC actually showed they just showed the crowd for yeah. several minutes before the game, and the crowd, yeah. the, the everyone in Wembley Stadium is singing the song that you and and Frank Skinner did. Yeah. Uh, well, how how did this whole period of your life feel? Might be a well, general um, question. It was, it was great in general. I mean, that particular thing, Three Lions being sung at Wembley, which, again, you know, it was a sort of strange accident of circumstance, which is we were asked to write that song by Ian Brodie of the Lightning Seeds. He said to us, can you write the lyrics? And he had been asked to write the England song by the FA. He felt that he didn't represent football fans in England, so very kindly he asked me and Frank to write it. We cheekily said, can we sing it as well? Which is particularly cheeky in my case because I can't sing. Uh, and then we did it. And then it was doing all right, the song, but it wasn't like a huge anthem. or We weren't aware of it being taken to the nation's hearts or anything. And then me and Frank are just at England-Scotland, which was the second game. And England, I don't know if you remember, but England hadn't been playing that well in that tournament. They'd drawn one all with Switzerland. They were, I think it was nil-nil with Scotland. It looked like it was going to be quite a dull tournament for England. And then, in the second half, uh, Seaman saved a penalty from Gary McAllister, um, and then uh, Gascoigne went up the other end and scored a brilliant goal, an amazing goal. Uh, and then when England went off, the mood was lifted, and the DJ at Wembley, who I have to thank for this, because he did it against the FA's advice, put on the song. And spontaneously, everyone in Wembley Stadium sung the entire song. <laughs> right? Now, I remember my manager saying to me afterwards, right, if you win an Oscar, which is very unlikely, but if you do, it won't be better than that. And I think he's probably right about that. Because the grassroots feel of that, the feel of, like, being, I don't know, just sort of something you did being celebrated by on a grassroots level rather than by an industry level, not by sort of the industry awarding you something, just by people saying, I'm going to sing this song. And also, I was incredibly happy anyway because England had played well and won, and the other tournament was going to be good. It was fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. You've got eighty thousand people, and it's a genuine moment. They can't fake this. I suppose so much. No, of exactly. It's very, un- very yeah. spontaneous, very genuine, very unfair. I mean, yeah, the surprise as well. I didn't know the song had been out, but I didn't know that people knew the words. <laughs> the words didn't weren't coming up on a screen. He just put the song on, and the whole of Wembley Stadium sung the song, every word. Unfortunately, Germany have long since commandeered that song. They have commandeered um, it, but that's a German thing, I think. Impossible, possibly, yeah. Um, you mentioned Paul Gascoigne there, who we've unfortunately seen photos of in the last week or so. I don't know how well you knew him in those years. Um, the, the national not very election, well. Those, did I, you I, not know? He, he came on fantasy football later, uh, you know, when, uh, later when the show was uh, itself not doing as well as it was, but certainly Paul wasn't doing so well. 
Um, he's a, you know, seemed like a lovely guy who completely lost his way and had a lot, a lot of damage uh, going on. Even by even back then. Oh God, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, he came on the show quite, you know, like in 2004, I think it was. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, yeah, he just seemed incredibly fragile. And it's a cliche, but you know, there must be some connection between Gascoigne's damage and his talent, in the same way that there must be with, you know, Maradona and. Uh, George Best. And, you think that's yeah. a, that's an interesting. Well, I mean, how how do you how do you see that working? Well, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be true of everyone because you know there are because Messi doesn't seem to have enormous damage and he's a great player. But there's something about those players, I think, about Maradona and about George Best and uh, and Paul Gascoigne and I don't know that that it feels to me that, that there's a wildness of imagination to the way they play that. As I say, this is a cliche, but I think it's true that it seems to be connected to uh, some kind of negative en- energy within them that's released through playing football. David, just uh, you have written a number of novels, and it seems to be an area, I don't know if you'd agree, it seems to remain largely resistant to football. The Damn United, obviously, was a pretty successful football novel a few years ago, but mm. you'd imagine the football landscape would provide quite a lot of fertile material. Mm. Is, is that not necessarily the case? Uh, that's a very good question. I don't know. There's um, oh, what's his name? Uh, the one who who wrote the Brian Clough book. Yeah, David Peace. David Peace. Yeah. yeah. Has he written a novel now about football or not? Uh, he novel? he wrote one about Bill Shankly, but it was yeah, a, yeah. But that's just another very good book, no doubt. Yes, a novel is maybe the wrong way to use it. That, uh, yeah, I'm not sure it was made into a film. Damn, the damned that's the damned United. United. The damned United. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I well, I can't answer that question about novels, but I've often thought the very few poor attempts to make football films demonstrate something about football, which is that there are some very successful American films about, say, baseball, aren't there? You know, there's Field of Dreams and The Natural and, and, and a few others that have done very well commercially. Um, and I think that's because American sport is quite like theatre in some ways, quite showbizy. Whereas I think football, again, despite all the showbiz elements that are attached to it, it has a reality football. It's very spontaneous sport. You can't really choreograph it in any way. And therefore, I think the theatre that happens within football itself is not replicable on the screen. When, it, when you try and do it, it looks ridiculous. And I wonder if that might st- apply as well to the written word, maybe when you try and make it up about football. Yeah. This is my guess. I don't know. No, it could well be. It's as good a guess as any, I think. David, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. I do have to ask you, just lastly... Uh, do you think Chelsea will win the Premier League this year? They look pretty good so far. I think they might. I think it's between them and, and Man City. I, I think uh, I think it's about Costa, actually. I think because when I watched Costa in the World Cup, I thought, oh, God, he's rubbish, and he looks like a really dangerous bloke, and, and he might go off. But he's obviously uh, you know, got a kind of really dogged ability to score goals, and I think that's what Chelsea needed uh, because obviously it hadn't worked out with Torres and whatever. So I think... The addition of someone who will score goals on a regular basis to the Chelsea setup suggests to me that they—that's the piece of the jigsaw we need. So I, I think we might. All right. Well, David Bedell, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. I must yeah, say, really and thanks so much it. for chatting to us. It's been Cheers, great, guys. Nice to talk. Brian, thanks many for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on the new show. I think it was a good soundbite in which I got now. Hmm. I'm still not convinced how... You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, and I used to explain to her to try to get out of the trouble, and she'd look at me and say, hmm, and I knew a butt-whooping was coming at the house. (laughs) It's a kip.
Look at it's, it's like a lot of the monuments around around Ireland, GA monuments. It's a dump. You know, I just had occasion to uh, rewatch some of the '94 win over Italy, the one nothing win, the legendary win at the Meadowlands, and the way you guys took care of Baggio with McGrath, you know, just laying his body out all over the place. Oh my God, was it a battle? And a lot of our boys used to love the fact that we were going up there because it just it was just a hammer match. The referee let absolutely everything go. And like, you loved as, it as well, Oshin, yeah. I absolutely hated it. I was about ten and a half stone. <laughs> Time. Uh, I was basically just there to take free kicks because of the referee that we had. There was no free kicks. <laughs> See, I wrote a book called The Rivals decades and decades ago. Vincent grew up in Brooklyn and he was very much into baseball and he was a Dodger fan. So he read that chapter because he read the book and he calls me up and he says, Jerry, I had to call you. You have written a great book. I said, Vincent, it's not a great book, it's a good book. Jerry, it's a great book. I'm saying, no, it's a good book. Now, he's defending my book, and I'm attacking it, right? Yeah. My idea is you got to win an argument with this guy. So he says to me, don't try to tell me it's a great, not a great book. I read it. I said, don't try to tell me it's not a good book. I wrote it. <laughs> that was really great to talk to David Badil there. Uh, quite a lot in that conversation. One, one strand I'd like to pick out, Ken, mm-hmm. if... I may is his thought on music versus football if you're on the way down to Electric Picnic today if you're listening to this podcast enjoy because it's not going to be around much longer music is mm. I can't even repeat the experience but music is, is mm. gone it's the death rattle <laughs> you're going down to Electric Picnic whereas to football the... you're on the right road if you're sticking with football here he also we, we mentioned at the start the whole of Bramvich years and how maybe the dynamic has changed doesn't seem to have changed with David Ken he seems pretty Pretty happy still to celebrate the victories, having gone through plenty of years in his earlier yeah. life without any triumphs. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe he feels like he's he deserves this now, after the years, the, the 80s languishing. That, that's what all football fans think, though. They just always think they deserve success. I mean, what football fan would say, yeah, maybe we don't deserve it? <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's, first of all, it's not a very human reaction, I think, in football, particularly not, because in every season there are 19 losers. Yeah. And one winner, so I mean, you're going to have a lot of losing seasons. So, how many seasons does it take? How many winning seasons does it take for you to say, right? Well, we've had our quota now. I think a lot of Man United fans were kind of saying that last last season. They were like, well, you know, when this when this whole, hmm. you know, it was a sort of a, it was one of the defense mechanism responses to uh, to what It'll happened. It'd be more fun this way, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> Yeah. That's pretty much it for this week. We've brought you six shows, including Bill O'Hurdy. Have a listen to that one if you haven't already. One last thanks for listening over the last year and more and for getting in touch with us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can also email us at irishtimes.com. All those contact details are available on our new website, secondcaptains.com. Right beside, in fact, I don't know if you've checked this out yet, lads. I hope you have. Right beside the image of the late, great Frank Sadler. Oh. That's where the contact details can be found. It's a name that still conjures up certain... It resonates. And it still resonates. It resonates. So I think after I thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. and thank you, Ken. Thank, thank you, Ken. too. I think uh, it's only right that we finish this week of celebration with Richie Sadler's touching tribute to everybody's favourite Victorian bulldog. The odds weren't in his favour. I just turned to him and said, "You tell me he's going to die." But the, the, the vet gave me a little fifteen-minute spell. He said, "Listen, I'll be into you again in fifteen minutes." I leave you too, and I just turned to him and said, Are you basically telling me here I should say goodbye?
I was in pieces on the night it happened and after that I thought you know this, I'm really dealing with this well like, I'm, 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 I'm a fine man the odds weren't in his face a few weeks later I happened to be sitting in my sitting room on my own watching telly and I went to get up and I just checked on the ground to see was Frank there so I wouldn't stand on him because he would always sit next to where I was sitting and then it just dawned on me going no he's gone and he's not coming back and Did you? Oh, Richie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 